Hello and welcome to Off The Record Podcast. Uh, this is episode one. Off The Record is hosted by myself, Zach Zarillo, and my friend Jesse Cannon. Uh, you may know me from a website called Property of Zach. Uh, that's been a website in the general warp tour field for about four and a half years now. I also manage a few bands under uh, the name Synergy Management and have a record label with my partner Thomas called Bad Timing Records. Um, and Jesse does a whole bunch of things that he'll tell you about. Yeah, we both do so much. So I uh, am a record producer first and foremost. And then with all that spare time that provides, I edit a site called museformation.com. That's uh, tips for how to promote your music. And from that, I wrote a book called Get More Fans, the DIY Guide to the New Music Business. That's a 700-page guide to how you promote your band and all the things I learned managing bands over the years and blogging about it for the past five years. Um, and I also master records. I'm putting out another record or I'm putting out another book, writing another book right now. And uh, I occasionally write for Zach's site, Property of Zach. And I, I guess we've known each other now for, huh, I'm trying to think. I, I think probably like four. three and a half years. I, the site's been going on for, uh, ongoing for five years. And I, so I think that started basically the year before Real Talk. Uh, so, so I think that makes we, sense. Yeah. So I think the first time we ever met in person was at a show at Webster Hall in New York. Jesse and I are both That's in right. the New York area or Philly area. Uh, and from there, it's been a mix of uh, working together with bands you work with or I work with or, or the website, I guess. Yeah, that's. Uh, I mean, I think did it did it actually start? Did I what was it? I I emailed you a pitch for something for Man Overboard that we were about to do or something like yeah, that. Yeah, the site was really in its infancy still, and I had never. Well, I I was not into the whatever you want to call new wave of pop punk yet. Uh, and so I got. A, I remember getting press release from Bear Trap uh, for mm -hmm. for Real Talk. And I decided to listen to it, and I was like, "Wow, I, I really like this. Uh, this is what the young people like." <laughs> <laughs> and then I, I think it start, sort of started from there because I was still truly figuring out all of Property Zach stuff. Like I didn't like we there were no true content plans yet or anything like that. So I was slowly trying to find bands to work with that would actually work with me because Property Zach mm -hmm. didn't look like an established thing like it hopefully does today. And between Man Overboard and Transit, there was uh, it made sense to work with those bands and, and then you through that, I guess. Yeah. I mean, but what you did come off as, and I remember the, the first, still can remember the first time I saw it, as I said, this is a site that has more passion than the rest. And that was what sold it. Yeah. Ooh, it's been a long time. And then <laughs> more recently, Jesse has, uh, for bad timing records, Jesse has been doing the mastering for vinyl for a bunch of both the reissues we've been doing. And then also the newer releases, sort of the, the cutting the individual, tr individual track. So, we just put out a uh, a knuckle puck EP that did well, and Jesse then remasters those or puts them into one file that we send over to the plant. Um, so we get use out of each other. Yeah, yeah it, 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 it's it's fun, and there's nothing like uh, you know one of the most rewarding things I, I've gotten to do in recent years was that acceptance record you guys did, getting to hear the high definition masters through my studio speakers. Like was like. You know, that's a record I've listened to 10,000 times. It's probably yeah. like in the top 10 records I've listened to the most in my life. And uh, 
hearing that was just so rewarding. And then also having it on multiple colors of vinyl now is really <laughs> all rewarding. The, all the vinyl colors. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it does sound really good. I remember the first time when we got the test presses and I was listening at uh, Modern Baseball South because I don't have a record player in Philly. And I was just like, wow, is wait, wait, it? You don't, you, you don't have a or you don't have a record player I don't have a record player okay. in Philly. I have a record say. player. <laughs> I have you a post so many here. pictures of vinyl. Uh, and at the office for the... At the office for like the record label, I uh, split it with Modern Baseball's manager, and they have a record player, but I don't personally have one in my apartment. But so, so I needed to go over there for listening to the test presses, and I was like, "Wow, this is either wrong because I'm hearing things that aren't on the CD or streaming sites, or this is like, or this stuff never came through the first time around," which was the case, which was awesome. yeah. I, I it was I think very nice too is uh, the label provided us with very high definition files so we were able to get a great press of vinyl and as I recently wrote for on your website is you know a lot can go wrong from getting the master from your mastering engineer label or whatever to getting the vinyl press and there's a lot of things you have to do to ensure that the vinyl comes out good and if you really care about vinyl you got to do a lot of things to make sure it happens. The great thing about major labels is that they keep those audio files. The bad thing about major labels is that they don't care about the art. That's not just majors, though. That's every, that's yeah, every label. No one cares the about art. All. We had to scan in CD copies of the art, and it somehow didn't turn out to be a disaster, but it was a very stressful. It, it slowed us up over a month and a half, I think, at some point. <laughs> wow. Um, um, but, but anyway, uh, this podcast is called off the record uh what jesse and i are hoping to do is sort of uh morph our our normal conversations which flow somewhere between again that general warp tour scene and but also the the music industry behind it uh in a way that is stomachable and not boring maybe uh yeah. for the people listening and just a nice mix of a nice mix of topics because uh jesse and i both in some ways work at the, the top level of uh, you may click a link to read about a band on Property Zach, but I also manage bands and Jesse also produces some of that music or, or does other things behind the scenes. So we both have, I think, interesting uh, views on everything because we see it from multiple different from multiple different angles and that always creates a different picture than just working on one angle of it. That and we're fortunate enough to not be um, musicians who are just uh, bitter about uh, everything that's happening. Yeah, we can be bitter about all different things, <laughs> not just not just one. <laughs> nice. Um, and also, we're going to get into uh, a lot of tech stuff too. Yeah, tech is good. Um, I, I'm in code school right now, so I'm loving tech. That's great. That's one. That's one uh, talent I wish I have that I hope to still be able to get before I ever. Basically, that it would be it would be nice if I could code my own websites. People assume it, that I can, and and I cannot do that. Well, you have a lot of years to go, seeing as um, your your be, best best your best years just started a couple weeks ago. <laughs> I think all the best years are behind me, as I've been told by oh, many friends. That's not true. I'm 36, and I I think I'm having my best years. So, oh God, that's a long time away. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so I, I thought we could kick it off with talking about, um, we're in a time now where luckily a lot of bands sort of like, and I've, I've been seeing, I've been stepping back and realizing that a band like the wonder years, there was, uh, there was this whole 
there's this whole popularity of bands like All Time Low or Forever the Sickest Kids are good pals mm-hmm. um, in the late 2000s where they were all getting really big, but the the scene below it didn't really exist. There was no there was no second or third tier bands of the basement show eras kind of stopped for a while. Uh-huh. Uh, and then a band like the Wonder Years made that first transition from a label like No Sleep to a to a hopeless, just like a transit or man overboard run from run for cover to rise. And and those earlier bands, in my mind, sort of laid the groundwork for all the younger music that we're seeing now. So they got they got like the bad contracts out of the way, or hopefully the good contracts, or mm-hmm. they did all the really shitty touring with with bad booking agents or bad promoters. And now there's a clear path for a band like a knuckle puck or a hotelier or a modern baseball. Um, mm-hmm. they, they, they built the foundation, but now these younger bands are sort of uh, growing a lot quicker because of it. For example, like a modern baseball. Um, yeah, they really are right. going fast. This has all crazy. happened now in a year, which has been insane. But, you know, four, four or five years ago, it might have taken twice as long. Um, which is great, which is which is awesome, obviously for everyone involved, from the from the band to the label to the to the managers, whatever. But there's sort of this period in between where a band releases a really good record, and then it's like everyone. It sort of just becomes like a a feeding pool. Like you you feel you hear or you smell the blood, and it's like I need to work with that. And so a lot of these bands will release an album by themselves because they just want to make music, and then. Uh, you know, there will be five booking agents and five record labels and mm-hmm. five managers all trying to grab this band to work with them because they like them, but also ultimately to make money. Um, yeah. Uh, well, I mean, but, you know, the perfect case scenario is that you want to make money and you're finding people who, like, you know, my secret in the music business and why I'm still happy doing this for a living is that you find the people that you like, you get along with, enjoy their music, and can make you money all at once. So those are the ones you work with. Let's not get the connotation bad that it's just oh, sharks yeah, it's, in the pool. It's, it's yeah. not bad, but I think it can be at first. Or there, uh, bands, bands who... I think there's two different kinds of bands. The one band where they sort of need that help right away because everything's getting too big for them, which is great. Like You shouldn't have to be booking basement shows if you can be playing in you know normal, hopefully on normal tours. Uh, and then... Mm-hmm. That part's great, but then there's also this thing where it's like, you know, some records are just, there's just so much buzz around some albums in a good way because mm-hmm. the album is hopefully good. Uh, mm-hmm. That it's sort of just because there's buzz, there can get all these other people just trying to jump in there. And I think yep. Hotel Year are a really good example uh, because mm-hmm. they released an album or an EP a few years ago on. Uh, a defunct label called Mightier Than Sword, and they then they sort of disappeared for like three years, uh, like truly three years. And mm. they wrote this whole blog post as they announced their album about how uh, they sort of were taken out and courted by these like evil managers that promised all these big weird music industry things that don't really exist anymore. Uh, and then they released this album, and it's tr- like everyone loves it that has yeah, heard it. And I love it. Yeah, it's my second, I think, favorite album of the year at this point, and I don't really know what could change that because it's just such like a, it's a heavy and fantastic album. Uh, but so then the other day, someone asked them on Tumblr, like, Max Bemis has shown a lot of interest in their band. Uh, I was mm. told like he flew out to see them in Texas and like, you know, that he drove around their van with them and whatever. And so someone was like, what's it like to like know Max Bemis now? Or, and what, what is it like to have someone have a lot of interest in your band? And 
they they wrote a nice answer about how like Max is cool, uh, but then the rest of the answer was interesting to me. It uh, it was just about how they're getting hit up by so many different people that quote unquote love them and love what they're doing, and there's no reason to think that that's a lie. But a band like that also wants to be careful about uh, who they're letting managing their art, which I think was the word they used, yeah. which is a good which is a good way to put it. It's not necessarily evil, but it but it can be bad, and you don't want it to be bad, especially when you're such a young band growing. Uh, and those early, those first decisions are, are uh, potentially critical for the rest of your hopefully long oh, yeah. career as a musician. And I think you, more than me certainly, have have been through that area with different bands a, a bunch of times. So what, are, in your mind, what are sort of like those first things that, you know, I guess from the managerial side, it's like, well, of course I want to work with you, but what do you think about, bands who are a little like uneasy about that well they're right to be uneasy and i think like you know the worst thing is, is like you know you never know you know like it's so funny because like the self-awareness gap of like you know there's always some guy from a band who wants to become a producer because he sees his music career evaporating and they go and find the hip new band and they're like i want to produce you and they hope they can market off of that this band came up listening to them so there's the bad side of like, it's like, you don't see that, that or like the cool manager guy who's like, I'm going to start a label. I want you to be the flagship band. And it's like, uh, yeah, really? Is that my best interest that I'm going to help you with all my newfound popularity? But like, I, you know, um, I've made my career, as I kind of said before, is like, I, if I don't like somebody, I don't work with them because I'm going to have to talk to them every day. And the few times... I have not trusted my gut about that stuff. Um, I've really regretted it. Yeah, it always bites you. It like, oh god, I don't know. It would it would terrify me. I think if I didn't have a good gut, and I I think if I yeah. didn't, I probably wouldn't really. We wouldn't be having this conversation right now. Same for you. Yeah. And it's well, really I, I think, it's interesting. <laughs> well, I, you you say something interesting here too. If if you didn't have a good gut, I think everybody has that gut, um, barring like a sociopath. Right, um, right, right. But like everybody has that gut about who they should be with and so much of life and you know you could boil this down to anything is that you do have to take that gut check very very seriously and um i think it's crucial that um bands don't like look overlook the opportunity like so i'm not going to name names but i uh, there was a perfect example of you know years ago band decided to work with somebody because they liked this person because they were in this band that they really respected right. and didn't trust their gut. And we had a terrible, terrible experience. And thankfully we were able to bail out of it before, you know, the guy was going to co- co-produce a record. And thank God, by the time we got to pre-production, it was fired. But like, you know, it's that, that thing of you gotta always work with who feels good and who feels right. Like, you know, um, even down to when I was managing Man Overboard in Transit, it was, of all the people that talked to us, Rise Records felt the best. They felt genuine. And I think there's even a thing in compliments you can hear. Like, you know, like when somebody likes your band, they don't say, hey, I really like your band. They say, you know, the lyric on song. Right. They can two. pick out They can pick out yeah. things that, that you can relate to. Like, of course, everyone's going to say, oh, thanks. I'm really glad you like that. But if, yeah. but if someone that wants to potentially work with you can say, I love the lyrics for the second verse of the not single on the album. And then you yeah. can talk about that. And it's those little things that uh, that ultimately build a connection like that, I think. 
Yeah, it's even that funny thing of like, I don't approach a lot of bands, and um, this week you introduced me to that band, Better Off, and right. I've like just fallen in love with this band. I was like, what would I even write this band if I was going to say it? Like, you know, that I'm like thinking, I'm like, well, you know, I love this. I think this is so unique about them. If I was to write them, and then, but you know, I'm one of those people. I don't feel very comfortable to it. Uh, approach it but you know the other side of this coin is too is that i think a lot of young bands don't realize like it's so toxic to write managers and write labels and ask for them to do it because it's the biggest waste of your time and you put all this energy into that that the other side is this is a necessary thing is that managers and labels need to come to you not you come to them and because of that you have to learn a lot of this stuff and um there's a band I've been helping lately, and it was like one of the funniest things they said to me. They said, you know, it's weird. Um, this label wants to hang out with us, um, but they keep not talking to our manager. Is it weird that they don't want to talk to our manager? I'm like, no, that's what they do. The label is going to work with you, and you might fire three managers in the time you're right. with them. Yeah, labels ideally don't. I mean, labels like good managers, but there are also a lot of bad managers. And for and, labels, it, you know, you want to know that you can work with a band and you want to know that the band wants to work with you and that you your only relationship isn't through an email through a manager. Yeah, and I think that that's a big thing is that, like, you know, there needs to be a relationship with the label and that and, like, I think a lot of young... You know, there's no manual for how these things go. I mean, maybe I should write one, but, like... <laughs> um, I think bands don't re always realize like that there's a lot of weird things that go on behind the scenes that are like, you know, there's no script and nothing follows it each time. But like, yeah, the label is going to want to take you out to dinner and not hang out with your manager the whole time and not have you be a interpreter for them the whole time. Call your manager afterwards. Tell them what they said. Your manager will bounce some ideas off you. And tell you what they think of some of those things, but you should have a re relationship with your record label that's not through the manager. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think it's also important for younger bands. Like, I don't know. I think a lot of people sort of assemble a team around them early now, uh, which is fine. But <laughs> also, it's important for some bands to just sort of struggle on your own. Not like hopefully your music is doing well, but just in terms of figuring out what works for you and figuring out what doesn't, because you don't necessarily want to clog your whole team around you and then be very unhappy from the start like at the end of the day and certainly from the start it should be something that you enjoy obviously yeah. oh and, i think you touch on a really great point too is that like i say it in my book is like you have to be a band that can self-manage yourself first and then when you get a manager that manager is just doing the things that you can't do or doing some of the things and accentuating it like you don't want to bore your manager with having to deal with the guest list because they could be doing other things that will help you really well. And so many bands look at the manager like, oh, now I don't have to do all this crappy work. I don't have to update my Facebook page. No. Yeah, it's like, no, you need to be doing that. Yeah, Man yeah. Overboard is like a, also a great yeah. example. I, of that. I, I was just going to say, yeah, like, you know, uh, the, the perfect example of like, you know, a lot of people have said nice words about like the time I managed Man Overboard, but I never, and they would never be anywhere if Justin wasn't such a great band manager. I mean, he's, the by far one of the best I've still ever seen to this day of just getting things done and being a really hard, savvy worker. And him and I both working nonstop. You know, the, there was a saying I used to have like when we were working together there's never an hour of the day that one of us wasn't working on that band. Yeah. And that's really, yeah, it's interesting. I was having a conversation with Thomas, uh, Thomas Nassif yesterday when we were out to lunch and we were talking about 
different bands on different labels and why some of those succeed and why some don't. And, and Rise, for example, is a label that, uh, like for those who don't know, they obviously, they're obviously on the Billboard charts a lot now mm -hmm. and they're doing really well, but they only have three main employees, which is kind of insane. Wow, I didn't someone. realize they still have only Yeah, they, they have a video guy now and they have a receptionist person. But it's like, you know, it's still the core three. And, and uh, to put that in contrast for people on uh, a label like, Ep, uh, Hopeless has like 20 employees and so do <laughs> Fearless and and uh, Epitaph and all that. And even a, label, a smaller label like Run For Cover has five or six yeah. employees. And, you know, Rise Rise does what they do well because they keep it so small. Um, well, but, and also, let's also talk about the other hidden thing here is that also they outsource a lot of jobs. They have outsourced sure. PR and, you know, a label like Epitaph has an in-house PR person and they outsource for some of the bands. Um and there's a lot of different models, but you know, right. the, it, not to take away from your point, though, which is it's insane that Rise has literally one band on the Billboard charts, on the singles charts, which is right. a monumental and, and the only reason that works, though, is because those bands have are really good at being their own bands on themselves. Like Just like you were saying, like when you get a manager, you, you shouldn't give up all of your responsibilities as a band. When you get a label, you can't necessarily do that either uh it's, it's no. interesting to see those bands on rise like some bands will be really good at taking care of themselves and social networks and whatever like a man overboard but then there are other mm -hmm. bands on uh rise who you may think should be doing just the same but they don't because they're not doing as much actively on their own um and that's like a that's an interesting thing and, and i use rise as an example instead of hopeless because uh, those teams are just bigger, so that the bands get more help, and I and I see that now, like doing day to day management for, you know, real friends where uh, Fearless actually has a great but a large team versus some other bands on labels that I work with or help out, where it's you have to be much more independent to push yourself through, and that's good. I think it's good for bands to sort of be independent on their own, but it's mm -hmm. just interesting to see the different labels and the different teams how they make it work or to help or actually hurt them. Yeah, and I, you know, there's an interesting tie-in to kind of the beginning hypothesis you were doing here about what's changed with these bands and how I feel like, you know, we are seeing a thing of like where it's like becoming that thing of like, you know, a couple of uh, bands are just, they're moving so fast compared to what was a couple of years ago, but there's also like the circular thing of like, so last time I walked home, I was listening to you and Jason's talk with um, Joe from early November, right. and I think that there's an interesting thing is that there used to be back then it would be like that thing of like you know richard and stephanie kind of said hey here's a band with ten that's played 10 shows let's put them on a label and instantly they have a huge fan base and buzz because anything that could sign but now it's really about the fans choosing them and you know some critics like you know hotelier or somos um who i worked with like would not be like as big as they were if Ian Cohen didn't put them on Pitchfork. Right. And there is a thing still that you do need that gatekeeper of a big site like Pitchfork and a couple others writing great reviews for you, but there's also the thing of that it's much more democratic and, like, you see a bad, like, I think Real Friends is a great example of just kids really bonded with those lyrics despite the fact that a lot of the music industry people kind of make fun of them for their lyrics and yeah, but you, you know, know what? They're they're doing phenomenally. Like Ian Cohen actually yeah. even he posted this uh, article. I'll, I'll put the link in the show notes called "Pop Punk's Credibility Problem" and it's a roundtable uh -huh. that he did. I was there. 
at the on the Wonder Years tour at the LA date, and he interviewed every band except Real Friends. And on the intro, he said, these four bands, and also an excessively annoying one, Real Friends, but by the way, they're probably going to be bigger than all of these bands put together by the end of the year. And you <laughs> know what? Like, he was, he's kind of right, you know? Yeah. And it's really interesting just to, there is definitely a shift. And it's interesting. Real Friends are a really good example of just like, how is this happening so fast? <laughs> yeah. And I, I think, I think that's a great thing. Like, that was the promise of the internet. It was like, it's funny. And like, it was kind of even why I wanted to start News Formation and write my book was like, I really believed that like, if music will be better in this world if it's not a bunch of, you know, 36-year-old guys like me choosing which bands get popular. Like, you know, I, I, I was no fan of Richard and Stephanie at drive Through, and I thought they were despicable people. And, you know, they would say disgusting things about who they would sign, talking about, you know, they, you know, there was like one point with a band called Madison that I worked with that they were like, we want you to sound more like the Beatles. So they're <laughs> trying to determine that a band that just wants to make a record like the starting line determine what their sound is and be everything that independent music and punk is about, about with this freedom of creativity that you shouldn't be interfering with. They totally turned into the opposite thing. And it was so disgusting. And these are the people who are choosing which bands get popular and get a huge voice in the business and a built-in fan base. And that's ultimate also why their label fell absolutely apart is because they weren't geniuses and you shouldn't turn every punk band into the Beatles just because that's what you like. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and you know what? I, I think that's a good transition. Uh, <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> also, uh, I don't know. This week, uh, that was like, there was a story that was interesting to me, sort of just the whole trend of watching a band like the Hotel Year this week speak out about what works mm. and what doesn't work for them as they're getting courted. And then sort of the opposite way of not a, not a small band getting big, the opposite of, well, some of these bands are big now and who deserves credit for that? And this week, both American Football and Mineral Reunited, uh, and were you fans of them when you were of age? Of when that uh, was of age? So, so, so th this is the funny thing. I mean, this is no disrespect to to Mineral, but like, you know. So to give the background, I've been, you know, I, I've been in the emo thing since day one. Like, um, a lot of people credit Native Nod as being the first emo band. I went to high school with the guys in Native Nod, so Mineral was kind of that bad that me and my friends. They were like the kids we wanted to give wedgies to. Like they were kind of like, this band's songs kind of suck, and everybody likes them. Are kind of like, I, I really just I don't want to make nerd a bad term, but they were just like they weren't cool to us. Um, right. And it's funny that it's cool now. And um, truth be told, American football, I never got into them until Transit told me to listen to them. We were making keep this to yourself, but then I loved them. But. Right. Um, I guess that's members of Cap and Jazz, and I was a big Cap and Jazz and Joan of Arc fan. Right. So yeah, and that was obviously all that was happening as I was truly a toddler. Mm -hmm. um, but I don't know, I've certainly listened to all of those bands, whether I like them or not. You know, any of the music on Jade Tree or any of the music on like mm -hmm. Revolution, those kind of labels. That's all. Those are all things I've made a point to myself to to at least give <laughs> try to at least like listen to over the years. Um, and so it's interesting now that there was never even a world back like five years ago. There was no way any of these bands were probably going to reunite just because there wasn't like it, it just wasn't there yet. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and now it is there and all these bands are reuniting. And that probably started when Sunny Day did like the the 10 year tour in 2009 and then mm -hmm. obviously like at the drive in and refused and et cetera, et cetera. Well, and, well, well, lifetime. That, right. I think I think Pete Wentz that was a interest thing. Yeah. in Lifetime do it because like. 
you know, I hang out with a lot of has been punk rock and hardcore guys um, and stuff. And there was a lot of people who I heard say things like, well, if Lifetime can make that money, we were bigger than them back then. Because it was true. You know, Lifetime's last show was 200 people. Right. I which was, is I, astonishing to people. Yeah. Now. And, you know, then their, their first shows back were literally 2,000 people right. like those reunion Yeah, shows. I actually completely agree. That's like a perfect way of showing like, yeah, someone like Pete Wentz then got a band like, lifetime back together then but now i think it's interesting like when you when you take it from the perspective of the actual bands like so mineral and american football those bands now live in tumblr world because of Mm -hmm. i think labels like run for cover and top shelf um Mm -hmm. whether it's someone like basement or you blew it uh you know i'll i'll be scrolling down tumblr and i'll see a reblog on american football song and i'll have like you know like 50,000 notes and that's <laughs> ridiculous you know but i think yeah. that's honestly I was, again i was talking with thomas about this yesterday i don't think these bands could be where they are now in terms of younger kids actually liking it because yes obviously a bunch of people in their late 20s or early 30s are going to be going to these shows but mm-hmm. so many people, when I posted on Property Zach, were like, oh my God, why is there not a date in Texas or California mm-hmm. or wherever? And those kids are kids, you know, or they're in their yeah. early 20s. And that's something I don't think, like even Lifetime really had the advantage of when they reunited because obviously the internet was a thing and blah, blah, blah. But the the accessibility to just sharing and these bands like, mm-hmm. you know, Basement or You Blew It. You Blew It's a good example of being like, mm-hmm. yes, we worship American football, you know, like mm-hmm. those. And then a kid on a Tumblr then searches for American football. And then it's like, oh, wow, this seems to be a popular band. I'm going to love mm-hmm. it, too. And it's interesting now that I think these bands are it's the perfect time. 2014, in my mind, is the perfect time. Yeah. And I think there's there's two. I, I mean, I, I will argue with perfect. So. I came into punk rock shortly before uh, Dookie. Okay. And Dookie made punk rock a lot bigger, but then Bleed American. Like, so, if you were a bad, um, you know, um, pre-Bleed American um, in New Jersey, you know, there would never be, like, there was no Wonder Years, there was no Man Overboard selling out a 2,000-seat show in Philly or New Jersey pre-Bleed American. So the seed got a lot bigger, and now I think it contracted a little bit. So, but there is a thing of that, you know, when a band would come around for a reunion, because I, so my other background is I used to book for about three years um, a ton of shows at two big venues, uh, New Jersey and New York City. And uh, when we'd get a reunion, if we got 200 people there, it'd be a, a miracle. Right. And this would be a big classic hardcore band. They were never going to play Irving Plaza or any big video and then never mind sell out tickets like we'd be like hoping we could make the guarantee right, certainly not back to like certainly yeah. not we have to add three shows for mineral at at a barry <laughs> yeah never never in the history would that ever have happened um for any punk band of pretty much i have minor threat got back together that might have been about the only thing that could do that right back then and like and you know that was the thing is like it was very rare you know like kugazi was probably the only band that was doing two thousand three thousand seat venues yeah, and that's crazy. Yeah, but I, you know, um, and with that, that thing that, yeah, it's some of its social social networks, but it's also always the thing of too is like Operation Ivy is a great example. Is this is a band with a platinum record that never played a show um, after that record came out, refused sold out seven thousand tickets in New York City, and played uh, twelve shows. And you know, I was at one of those too. 
there was less than 200 people there yeah. on their last shows. And then the next time they come to America, it's 7,000 people. <laughs> um, it's, it's, a, it's a crazy thing, but that's also the thing of make good music, people will spread it. Right, and eventually. It's much easier to spread. You're, hopefully your good music will not be forgotten. And, a lot, and now we're seeing that a lot of it has not been forgotten, which is great. I, I think most of the good music, as long as it's on your Spotify's and your iTunes, uh, is not being forgotten. These yeah, days. I agree. Um, I, I think that somebody's going to make a million dollars off of reissuing a lot of uh, emo records that are not on Spotify and iTunes at some point. But because uh, I think there is some '90s emo that is forgotten and hasn't gotten uh, its day. But like, you know, there's the same thing like that Nuggets collection. Um, that box set that came out like 20 years ago of like all the 60s garage groups, somebody's going to make that of, you know, of, of that era. twinkle daddy's <laughs> emo stuff. Um, yeah. Yeah. And that, that, that's a million dollar idea for somebody. Maybe not a million. You could make a hundred thousand dollars from that, that somebody can go and do. I'm not doing it. <laughs> <laughs> and but, so what was interesting about all that this week was there sort of got into a, a nice Twitter uh, spat. Oh, this yeah. week, uh, just you know, between some people in the in the press, uh, mm-hmm. between uh, the Was the world e- e- the world that covers every day this music. So mm-hmm. let's say alternative press. Uh, you know, we and even property Zach, we've covered a lot of these bands for years, uh, mm-hmm. and and su- and literally about a year ago now. Whenever balance and composure and and a lot of, not a lot of speed. Whenever balance and composure and Touche Amore announced their new albums, a shift happened. They both mm. got their first coverage on uh, Pitchfork, and it was mm. sort of this revolution where I remember all the conversations like, "How is this on Pitchfork? Oh my God, it's mm-hmm. on Pitchfork! This is so cool! Who the fuck is this Ian Cohen guy?" And that's <laughs> like that's like truly I don't know I must have like that week I must have had like ten conversations about people freaking out that a band like Balance and Composure could be on Pitchfork, and all of my friends at least or people I communicate with thought it was this really cool thing because. Mm-hmm. Property Zach is always going to cover balance and composure. You know, they're a, mm-hmm. they're a, they're they are one of the bands where if you ask me name twenty bands that your website is about, I would name one of them. And mm-hmm. but there was no, there was never a hope for them to be on like, it wasn't even a theory. Like you, you couldn't even yeah. fantasize about it because it just would I, never I, have happened. I've been reading Pitchfork since the late nineties, and if you told me that a band that like Somos, um. If, even when we were making that Somos record, which was a year ago this time, if you told me that that record was going to be on Pitchfork, I would have laughed in your face. Right, me too. That's the thing. Every, like yeah. literally, everyone would have laughed in your face the day before it happened. But then it mm. happened, and since then, at least once a month, several times a month, bands are getting covered on Pitchfork and Spin and Stereo Gum. Um, mm-hmm. And it's interesting because none of the band, like even a band like Brand New, sort of mm. the the king of the. I like to call it like thinking man's emo does not get does <laughs> That's not a great great term <laughs> does not get covered on on pitchfork you know yeah. and but suddenly like all these offshoots bands that clearly grew up listening to brand new whether it's mm-hmm. like a a balance or a title fight or a modern baseball whatever they get this coverage and you know most of most of the response from like people in our scene has been really great because we just want these bands to grow obviously um and there have been some bands that have been vocally against it, like were, um, were is that how we were, were, yeah, like were, were, were yeah, uh, who have it, been very. It's against, easier to read that name than say it. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> um, who have been like against Pitchfork, but then there's also this small 
there, there's a small divide of people that cover these bands every day. So mm-hmm. someone like me or, or Jason Tate or Scott Heisel or mm-hmm. those websites, because we've covered these bands every day. And all of a sudden now that they're getting bigger press or a potentially bigger press, they, they obviously want to go for those opportunities. And I guess I can decently yeah. talk about it because uh, now that, uh, I don't know, band, let's say Balancing Composure again. Now that Balancing Composure can get a premiere on Noisy or Pitchfork, mm-hmm. They don't necessarily need to give it to Property Zach or to Absolute Punk or to or to all press. And that's a really interesting development, honestly, over the last few years. I, I interned at Crush one summer and Patrick Stump was launching his yeah, why don't you explain to people what Crush is? Because I don't think everybody's gonna Crush know. is a management company uh that managed some of the biggest bands in the world. Uh they manage yep. Fallout Boy, they manage Panic at the Disco, Cobra Starship, Gym Class Heroes, basically the, that whole decadent scene. And then they also manage uh, like Train. Uh, yeah. And so they're they're this really powerful management company and honestly some of like the smartest people I've ever, ever been around. Truly just, if you think about Fall Out Boy's whole return campaign, it was incredible. It yeah, was just that, I, I, phenomenal. I'm in awe. I'm in awe. Yeah. Especially like, you know, not that my music taste means anything, but the fact that that record was that successful when... I find it unlistenable. Um, it, it was just a smack. Like even even yeah. with me ruining the announcement, it was uh, <laughs> it was truly a just great. It was great. I don't know. The whole campaign was great. Um, but one day when I interned there after senior year of high school, uh, Patrick Stump was launching a, a fairly short lived solo career, and we had a meeting about basically where we should premiere his uh, first song called This City. I think it's called This City. Yeah. And I was like, well, why not give back to, I know you want to expand past the quote unquote scene, but why not start there? And, you know, so they come along with you. Mm-hmm. And they were like, well, actually, that's a good point. But the thing with a website like Absolute Punk or Properties Hack is that if we premiere this song on TMZ, let's just say, mm-hmm. you guys are going to post about it anyway. Yeah, because and that's it, and that was one of the most val- probably the most valuable thing I walked out of there knowing it was like, well, oh, right, we cover these bands every day, regardless. And the, 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 there's also an interesting thing, like I talk about in the book, and uh, there's you know um, trickle down and grassroots promotions, yeah. and like um, trickle down promotions, like you know everybody wants to get their song on Pitchfork, like I you know I have like a, a joke all the time that I say is like every band that comes into my studio is like. I want to be on Pitchfork, but I don't read that terrible website. Yeah. And so why do you want to be on it? It was one question. But the big thing is, is that what a lot of people don't realize, and you know, the living proof is Todd, my co-author, is in a band called uh, Sensual Harassment. And the way he got on Pitchfork is he pitched to some small blog and Big Stereo, which is this big dance blog. Um, big Stereo then read that small blog, blogged about them, and then Pitchfork reads Big Stereo, and Pitchfork then blogged about them because they read it off about it on Big Stereo. Right. And a lot of people don't realize that there's two ways that this publicity game works. And they're like, why am I going to pitch? You know, it, it's the same thing. I'm sure you read to find bands. You read some of the smaller blogs that aren't as big yeah, as absolutely. yours. I, I know a you're a about... huge Pup Fresh fan. Oh, those are my boys. <laughs> um, my guys. <laughs> um, but, uh, and no, there's value in don't... finding. There's value. There's value in literally everyone, regardless of your field, and finding the potential next thing that that yeah. either you may like or that you can uh, exploit in a good way, some way on your platform. So if it's knowing that modern baseball is going to definitely blow up, I should become friends with modern baseball. 
you know, yeah. some, something like that to that extent. Yeah. And I, I think, uh, it, well, there, there's another thing too, is that bands don't realize that most of the things that happen in the music industry is just because they're friends with another band. Yeah. But that's a whole entirely different discussion. But, um, I, it, it's funny with the Scott Heisel thing of like two of like, I never get why people aren't happy when the world comes to see they were right. Oh, yeah. oh wait, yeah. So I guess to talk about, to explain a little more, um, you know, both of these bands were united, Mineral and American Football, and they both got press coverage on uh, on Pitchfork. And not only did they get coverage, but the actual exclusive announcement went through Pitchfork. Uh, mm-hmm. And Scott Heisel is the, uh, I believe his title would be editor-in-chief of Alt Press's magazine, yeah. not, not necessarily the website, but the magazine. And, you know, he has been someone that has truthfully been covering those bands or, you know, offshoots of those bands like Promise Ring or uh, yeah. Braid or whatever for his whole career. And he's yeah, put, for, for as long as I can remember. Right, for Scott's as long as he, he has been writing music, it has been about bands like that. And those are his favorite bands. And uh, I think to him, because potentially all press has been missing out on that Bounce and Composure exclusive or that, you know, mm-hmm. Touche Amore exclusive to Pitchfork that when these bands reunited and didn't necessarily thank the the smaller guys like us, but actually just went for the announce on Pitchfork because they can now, even though Pitchfork 10 years ago, 15 years ago, would have given them like a two-star review. And in case... Well, well and, what they would have done is they would have given a two-star review and then as Pitchfork's been caught for doing, then revised it up to yeah. a nine 10 years later. Yeah. <laughs> well, even... Uh, Get Up Kids are a good example. Get Up Kids have like oh, a yeah. four-star review. They hate and it's... it's oh. Anybody who was in Dandy Rock when I was young, if you said you liked the Get Up, that was like a, the equivalent. You were going to get a wedgie and hug up in the bathroom right. or your underwear up the flagpole. Right? They they were like the ultimate band to hate for the Pitchfork. Crash. Yeah, and and so Scott kind of got into this big beef with uh, with Ian Cohen and other people, and you know even me and Thomas and and Jason Tate about. I think the tweet was something along the lines of. Like fuck off to these other websites, basically. Like we were here, like we're we're here now. We were here ten years ago, and we're going to be here when you stop covering these bands again. Um, and after that, this website called uh, I think The Wire published a yeah. story uh, called "Who Deserves uh, Credit for Making Emo Cool Again." And I don't know. I, I think that's an interesting question, and I don't. I think that article itself is actually pretty good. It, it basically yeah, that article just, is great. Yeah, I think it basically. My favorite paragraph was basically like, "No one who like who cares." Uh, well, I, actually, I don't think that the answer is no one who who deserves. It is right. who cares, and I don't think that that's a big deal. But the answer is is who deserves credit? The bands that made great records that were influenced by these bands and that coming around again. It's the the fact of the matter is is like, you know, I look at this grunge revival, which is really depressing to me because. <laughs> I, you know, I grew up in the grunge era and I don't look forward to it coming back. And I do not look forward to bands coming to the studio wanting to imitate those sounds. Right. Um, but, you know, that grunge revival happens because a band like bands have made grunge influenced records, but then Basement made Color Me Kindness. Right. And that's what brings that back is a band doing a great record with those influences. And that's the only thing that brings it back. Not some nerd. And, you know, this is. And I mean no disrespect to Scott, but like I hate nothing more than the pundit class, which I consider myself a part of, of trying to pretend that we're important. We're not very. Yeah, important. like I'm so happy that <laughs> I don't know, and I and I keep saying modern baseball because I go to school with them and they're my best friends. But clearly that that band is happening right now. Like yeah. we're in an air, we're in a time period right now where modern baseball are going to be one of the biggest bands in our sub scene below, yeah. you know, below the Fallout Boy air class, you know, and. 
Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I started literally like what their first album was sports. They invited me over to their house, their punk house. And they said, can you make a press plan for me, for us, for this album? And I was like, okay, um, I don't hate it. So sure. And you know what? I did yep. that. And now like, you know, we, when we decided to sort of plan out their new album, they were getting premieres on Brooklyn Vegan and, and Pitchfork and all this stuff. And I was like, oh my God, I'm so happy for you. You know, like, yeah. we did it. We did it. You know, cause, cause the goal, like the goal for any band isn't to, to tap out at property to Zach, you know, like it can be, <laughs> it's a goal for a lot of bands to make it on the website. And that's rad. But like, I don't want you to tap out at Properties Act either, you know? Like, I want you to be the biggest band you can be. And, like, for example, Modern Baseball did premiere stuff on all these other websites, but the first premiere was on Properties Act because it was oh, a, cool. you know, a justifiable thing. But it's not always going to be that way, and I don't need it to be that way because I know that there's still a bond, right? You're, you don't go to... The, my, my thing with this whole argument from Scott basically is, you literally are not going to Pitchfork to find out about Mineral, right? You're not yep. going to Pitchfork to find out about Modern Baseball. You're going to Property Zach or All Press or Absolute Punk to find out about these bands. Like, day in and day out, you know, you trust that these websites are going to be posting about them. Mm-hmm. Pitchfork is not a site someone like I or a fan of All Time Low or a fan of The Wonder Years, they don't read Pitchfork every day. They go to Pitchfork when a band does something there. But every day, they're still coming back to our outlets. Uh, and, and, and I don't know. I think at the end of it, I was just kind of confused and more like, it's a victory, first of all. Yeah. you know. And, and at the end of the day, it's like, yeah, it hurts our websites potentially. But you know, just like I was mm. told in that meeting with Crush that one day is that like, you know, we're going to post about it anyway. I, I think, one, it doesn't hurt you guys because it broadens the tent because more people are going to hear about it, and then that's going to trickle down to you. And I think the, the other greater thing about this and the, the life lesson is also the thing of, like, when you're an actual genius, and this is, like, the thing that I don't get about why Scott should be better, but, if like, if you're really good at something, it's the same thing, like, a lot of bands get really concerned about, like, what if somebody steals my song? Like, I've had a lot of things stolen from me. I've had a lot of ideas. I've had a lot of you know, whatever, business from my studio. But the one thing is, I know I'm good enough to keep coming up with good ideas and keep doing great things. The person who has to steal is not going to be able to keep replicating this Absolutely. stuff. And that's the thing is, just when you see that, see somebody else doing it, see somebody stealing your beat, just go, cool. I'm going to make gonna another keep, one. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to do this again, and guess what? You have to steal from me, and you have to... And that's only going to get harder because you're only going to be smarter about it. You know? Yeah. Yeah, I completely completely agree. Um, And that's the the life lesson is don't be bitter. Just keep doing great things. It's... it's, Anybody I know who's successful does that, and all the bitter people who walk around with that, they're miserable in their life, and they don't go on to do better and greater things. Yeah. Um, so the, this first episode of off the record is sponsored by get more fans, the DIY guide to the music business. Uh, it's a 700 page extensive guide to the resources and methods to promote your band, detailing everything you need to know to get people to listen to your music. Now with 20 more pages, including a bonus chapter on the daily habits you can do to get more fans, uh, through your music. And you can find that at getmorefansbook.com. I believe there are both digital and paperback options. And this was, of course, written by your co-host, Jesse Cannon. Awesome. Um, So next up, I think, is Beats. Uh, And I I think it's both interesting. It's interesting to both of us for a lot of different reasons. In the the 
streaming sense to me, uh, I prefer RDO because I am a nerd for nice design things. Also, yeah. of course, it needs to work. Um, but yeah. beyond that, I all my friends, most of my friends use Spotify. Uh, and yes. they're sort of like they don't even know what RDO is. Uh, but to me, there's there's never been another question except to use RDO, just because I find a lot of Spotify's uh, settings and looks and everything just to be like truly frustrating the, to me. The, cl- the clutter too. Yeah, I, you know, I actually so tried to go back to Spotify this week because one of um, my friends just kept being like, "Oh, I found out about this record from this person listening to it." And I'm like, "I'd like to do that." And then I went on for about a day, and I went right back to RDO. Yeah, and I I, I, a, I do want to check it out because I, I guess they did update the design and everything. But to me, it just kind of from the screenshots I've seen and everything, kind of just looks like a mimicked of RDO design. <laughs> yeah, and it's just still that thing of I don't care what my Facebook friends listen to. I care, yeah. you know, I care what you listen to, but, right, I but you don't care just, what that person from your high school you, class that exa- found you three years ago on Facebook is listening to. Exactly, exactly. And if anything, I hope to not know what they're listening to. <laughs> right, um, exactly. Uh, and, and then that's the other th- thing about RDO is that most of my music nerd friends are on there. Yeah, and I can see what they're listening to. Uh, you, uh, you know, I. Found a record the other day just by scrolling through and seeing what a fr- Fred was listening to, and I really enjoyed it. Yeah, absolutely. And so uh, Beats Beats was you know rumored to launch for a long time, and it finally did. I think just at the top of this year, and I guess they started the promotion for it at the Super Bowl, and that's sort of where it all went wrong for me. Truly, from the start, mm-hmm. uh, they they started branding it with like the, their Super Bowl ad was with Ellen, and you know I love Ellen; she's cool. Mm-hmm. I used to watch Ellen when I was homesick from school. Uh, but like Ellen is not what you want. Beats is supposed to be so cool. That's the thing about yeah. Beats versus versus both Spotify, iTunes, and RDO. Like Beats is supposed to be cool. You know, like that's kind of the whole branding about it. And so to launch during the Super Bowl, that's fine, whatever. But then to launch it with Ellen, to me, it's just you're getting off on the wrong foot. Uh, like don't advertise to the moms or the dads or whoever watches Ellen. Like advertised to the younger person watching the Super Bowl that that wears your Beats headphones, you know? Yeah. And they didn't do that from the start. And so beyond that, it's also just been tricky for them. Uh, I guess they're from like reports they've had uh, just l- subscribers in the low uh, 100,000s, which for a service that is supposed to sort of be kicking ass this year uh, is just not doing well. What, what were your sort of early experiences with using the app itself? Well... I actually really like the playlist. I've never had a better experience of the radio function playing me songs I actually like. Like, you know, oftentimes when I want stuff recommended, I'm trying to hear 90s punk or something like that. Right. Man, they did a great job. Like, I put on a thing and I'd be like, wow, this record's great. And I heard cool new things. But, you know, not having a new releases page. Like, for me, my favorite thing about RDO is that every week when the new releases come out and you know, I listen to a lot of different types of music. It's like, I can just scroll through it and every record that came out this week, if I've heard of that band, I can hit play and decide if I like it or not. Not having that and having lots of play issues. Um, Something like the new releases page, like, that's just like, that's a check mark, right? That's like, yeah. this is what you start, you start with that. And it, it's, yeah, it's confusing. There, there are a lot of things about that app when I was, when I was testing it out that were just like, you can leave off a bunch of stuff, right? Because you don't want to be cluttered like Spotify. But at some point, it's just like, hit hit your essentials. This was yeah. an essential. Yeah. And so while I like it, and I do think it's a great looking app, and but like I also like 
The thing I hated about RDO two years ago is every time I'd hit play, it wouldn't play. And now that's fixed, but Beats has that same problem as it doesn't play. Um, the one thing I will say is Beats, hi-fi-wise, I did an A-B test of listening to some songs I produced uh-huh. on Spotify, Beats, and RDO, and Beats sounded the best, but RDO just upped their quality. Yeah, they week. did to 320. So now it's like RDO just more and more become... They're, they're, they are hitting off the now the low-hanging fruit, you know? And yeah. there's still so much for beats to try to compare to, especially when they're in this game two years late. Uh, and and so I think what was interesting to me about beats this week was that they added uh, iOS in-app purchasing uh, for subscribing. Yeah. So that means instead of logging on to uh, beats website originally, I think it was to pay your $10 yeah. a month or whatever it is, you can now do that just through your, your iOS store, uh, yeah. your Apple store, which is, I don't know that necessarily everyone knows this, but that's a really interesting uh, change of change of strategy. Change, yeah, change of strategy. What the difference is, if you go on and you buy a Beats subscription from BeatsMusic.com, Beats gets all ten dollars of that every month. But if you go through and you buy it through the App Store, Apple makes thirty percent of that money now. This wasn't three percent. Yeah, th- <laughs> that wasn't previously an option uh, because Beats wanted to make all that money, but. The assumption is is that they sort of turned that switch on because their subscriber count was not what they needed it to be, and uh, you know nothing nothing gets you more money than making it easy to get money. Uh, and yeah. it is so easy for someone to just say, "I'm going to try this app." Uh, oh, I, I have to pay ten dollars a month. I don't want to pull out my credit card right now. Oh, I can just type yeah. in my iTunes ID. Yeah. Okay. Whatever. Yeah. It's it. You know, it's it's a lot easier to spend money that way. And uh, well. Go ahead. I think the the funny thing though that would also is about this pay thing is as though they may have fixed that, but the thing that's still broken is already on Spotify are free, and this is so puzzling to me because Ian Rogers, the CEO of Beats Music, uh, formerly was CEO of Topspin Media, um, and this is the who I would consider the smartest guy in the music business, and Ian was the biggest champion of. Premium, which is the idea of you give something free and then you pay for a premium to have more features. And this guy spread this message for years and Beats does not have a free option except for your seven-day trial or maybe 14-day I, I trial. Think I, I think it's 10-day. I, I think it's something in between. Days. But yeah, you're right. It's, yeah. it's totally, it's it's puzzling. Uh, and yeah. I don't, there's no, no one has really offered an explanation why. And I don't know, I think at this point it, it must almost be like uh, the company has to be forcing that down like i don't know i think they probably thought beats has such beats really does have phenomenal branding right just with the headphones alone regardless of what you think of the headphones they have kevin garnett in a commercial they have whoever you know basketball player x to soccer star to musician you know to to like dr dre himself you know it's like yeah all like the branding is phenomenal and i think they thought well of course people are going to pay for this they paid however much for our shitty headphones anyway you know like yeah, yeah And and that's a I you know I, I think there's credit to that thought, but I think it was kind of ballsy and it it didn't pay off. It didn't pay off, and I, I don't think there's any chance of them uh, switching because Ian tweeted yesterday a quote from Seth Godin that said, "Free is a fine way to grab attention, but often it's precisely the wrong sort of attention from the wrong people." So that sounds like somebody who's not about to start making his service go for free. And that's interesting because it's kind of, it's already kind of, it might be too late already for Beats, you know? And obviously there's nothing, like, 
if, I don't know, 200 to 300 subscribers for them paying $10 a month, you can do that math yourself. That's a lot of money. Uh, and if that is, and if that's all they need, fine, like good for you guys, you know, but I don't think they have, yeah, I don't think, I don't think that's what they were aiming for, you know? Um, well, I think the one thing that uh, I, I think the one thing I'd, I'd take you to task on is it's not too late for them. Like, you know, I very much, I, so I just read, uh, the Amazon everything store book and, you know, Jeff Bezos has that whole theory of, you know, we're not, we haven't even woken up on the first day of the internet. And there's a long game in sure, this. Sure, sure, but a lot of companies... Yeah, I, I agree, and I, I think and, the Amazon one's interesting. And, like, I, I will say this, that Beats has 85%, I want to say, of the market of headphones and all sorts of money to pour into this. And also, you know, a head of it that runs one of the biggest labels in the business... Um, it's going to be very, very easy for them to stay at this game and wait it out and try to just be the quality. Right, and that's uh, that's totally fair. To Spotify. Yeah, yeah and, and to be fair, like, RDO could go under any day for all we know. Yeah, you know, or get I, bought I, out. I, I, yeah, I was going to say it. I think the sad thing is, is we will lose our beloved RDO, and I think Beats will reign supreme in the end. But there, they have definitely not had a good launch. I mean, it's no, no healthcare.gov, but it's not the right, right. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's just, philosophy. it's just confusing. Like, you know, even again, to bring it back to like, you guys are the coolest brand. Why is Ellen doing your first ad? You know, like why yeah. isn't, why isn't LeBron James doing it? Or it was the Super Bowl. you know, like why isn't yeah. Peyton Manning's not a cool person to be doing that. But like, why isn't Tom Brady doing that? You know, it's just, uh, it was confusing to me and it's all been kind of shaky. To be fair though, it seems like, uh, the iOS in-app purchase has done a lot of good. They're currently number four in the App Store, and they were at one point uh, number one for a while. And so, you know, that's definitely... They're number one in music right now. Yeah, too. and so it was definitely translating for a while. I mean, still is, obviously, into a lot of new subscriptions, and that's really important at the end of the day. And I don't think it's a big deal for them to lose that 30% cut, but it just obviously... They obviously made that move because they needed to, you know? Yes, I, I agreed. And, but at the end of the day... I think they can do a, a bunch more missteps, and they're still going to come out pretty well. Yeah, at yeah, the end yeah. of the day, yeah, it's not. Yeah, I don't. It's it, it's sad, but it's true. And you know what? I actually hope it it does good because I would love to switch over to to that app because there's some things I really like about it. So yeah, and at the end of the day, the competition is good. I, I do think the playlist. Yep. I'm not. I don't. At this point, and how I consume music, I typically just enjoy, you know, listening to a whole album or an EP or whatever. Oh, really? But but I, I'm I, a like, playlist person. Yeah, a lot of people, a lot of my friends are. And that I used to be, and then I don't know, I think somewhere around like truly, truly falling in love with Blink, I was just like, well, why wouldn't I listen to this whole album, you know? Hmm. Um, but yeah, I, I, a lot of my friends are total playlist or shuffle people or, you know, Spotify uh, radio people. So I do think that the outlet for them to have those, uh, what's it called, the sentence? The sentence playlist? Yeah, the sentence. Yeah, I, I think that's a great idea. And I actually think they... I don't know. Maybe you know this. I think they pay people to curate those, right? Yeah, they do. They ha they have a bunch of pitchfork writers on. Yeah, down. and I think it's uh, like I think it's some good money in there. Uh, I, I you know they have the money to spend. Yeah, so I will. Like, we will like make any startup. Yeah, does. we will. We will make punk playlists. You guys just let us know. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. I'd love to to make a forgotten yeah. '90s punk playlist and a forgotten '90s emo playlist for them. <laughs> yeah, I do think that's an. I I think that's a pretty interesting model, though, and I actually like that a lot. Like, I think that's. Cool. Also, for the people, you know, they're adding business that they didn't necessarily like. They're they're providing business and income for people that 
typically would have no uh, area to make it in that field because who curates playlists for pay? Like that's not something that all these other services do. So I, I like a lot that Beach does that. I, I think there's also a thing too that um, we've been proven over and over again. Like whether you know you want to take it to the movie Her on down that you know robots don't have emotions. Right. <laughs> robots. And music's all about an emotional response, and I don't care about how good your music genome is. It's just like, you need people to make correlations. And I know that there's people coding and putting in traits in Pandora and all that stuff, but I've never had a usable recommendation until the, whatever Beats did, so... Yeah, I don't really... I really don't know what there is to say about, about that other than... I think you need music nerds to make good calls. Yep, I I, I agree. Uh, and I and I guess to wrap things up, there was this really interesting. I mean, not interesting, kind of just sad and and pathetic of a of a piece that popped up earlier in the week that that I never even got around to posting, which was uh, the red red jumpsuit uh, apparatus, who you may know from a song called Face Down, and that's literally the only thing you know about them. Uh, <laughs> They, they used a photographer. They took a photo that a photographer took of them while they were playing live. They posted it on, I believe, their Facebook account. They cropped, mm -hmm. they cropped a portion of it out so it didn't have the photographer's watermark on it. Uh, and then when the... This happens all the time, by the way. Like, all the time. Regardless yeah. if it's a band, a website, or you know something in the professional I, I, world. I would say it happens once every minute. Yeah, all the time. I mean, frankly, I do that too. Uh, yeah. You know, some watermarks are... The point of a watermark is to credit your work, obviously. But some some like photographers get so like I don't want to say protective because you you know you should be protective of your art or whatever. But some photographers get so I don't know like energetic about it that they'll make these massive like the watermark is like a sick like you know an eighth of the pho pho uh, photograph you know the photograph you know yeah they're these huge ugly watermarks and it's not that you don't want to credit the photographer but it's just like you what are you guys doing right now you know yeah uh, the vibe of the photo is ruined by some right. of these right insanely pretentious watermarks. Right. however this wasn't the case for this thing yeah. uh, it was just like a, a little watermark and so the photographer emailed or or commented on the facebook thread being like can you add this uh and that happens also a lot and usually it's not mm -hmm. a big deal sometimes it is but usually it's not and instead of doing the polite thing, which would either be messaging that photographer privately or, or you know, uploading a new picture, man, they went at it. And this band just was like, we're not going to credit you for your work. We don't need to. We think it's a joke. And, you know, this was definitely a band that had to get hurt after the collapse of CDs. You know what I mean? It's just mm -hmm. like, th like this was one of those bands where they had small uh, connections to the, like, pop punk scene or whatever where... They, you know, they had a major hit that was on the radio and MTV and stuff, and it, it changed overnight. And I bet a lot of that change was illegal downloading, you know. And you, I can tell you that that band was not stoked when a million people illegally downloaded Face Down, you know. And it, well, well, to to that point, I think the most hilarious part of this is this is a band who literally got popular off a song that was a song Fallout Boy stole from Taking Back Sunday and they used the same melody <laughs> as that. Like, it, that's, that's yeah, the, the Tell like, All Your Friends like, melody. Yeah, it's like, like it's the literally the song original. Tell All Your Friends sung with different fucking lyrics. And you stole to get your popularity and now you're mad when, you know, this song, 
somebody else is saying, hey, you stole it. Maybe you should have some empathy towards this person, considering your whole shit career is built on the fact that you stole songs. And they don't even have a career. They tour once yeah. a year in 200 cap venues with these, like, like they're not like a real band anymore, you know? And it was, it was just very astonishing to see this whole thing kind of figure out. And, you know, they have a gold record for that record. Oh, yeah. It was a huge hit. I'm not going to lie. I like three songs on that record. I only know that song, but I love that song. I yeah. was young. I, 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 I mean, I think I was probably in like sixth or seventh grade when that song came out, and I loved it. it I think that's. I, I, well, you have a lot more of an excuse for me who was like 28 years old, like listening Look, to that man, record. Look, man, you all can't deny a good Taking Back Sunday song. <laughs> yeah, it's really true. Um, I definitely listened to that record a lot more than I listened to the Red Jump Super <laughs> record. I think but, everyone does. But I don't know. But, what was interesting to me about that was just that. Like truly, the like, case of like hypocrite, like hypocrisy for the week was was taken care of on Monday with that. You know, it's just like, for, yeah. and it's interesting to me because I do get into little tiffs sometimes with photographers about crediting work. A lot of websites, how it'll work is, you know, you have that big main picture, uh, and you know, someone obviously took that photo, but those are just press pictures, mm -hmm. and publicists often just email uh, websites press photos to use. Uh, mm -hmm. And sometimes they come with credit and sometimes they don't, but they rarely, rarely ever say, please credit this photographer if you ever use this press photo. And most websites don't because most websites don't have a built-in sort of CSS thing to, to you know, recognize a photographer or something like that. So these press photos just are press photos of the band. They're not tied to a photographer. Um, but every once in a while, you know, I'll get an email from a photographer being like, you use my press photo, please contact... Uh, I'm going to send you like a DCMA if you don't credit me. And it's like, you look, man, my job is to post about the band. Your job was to get paid to take this photograph. Yeah. Uh, and then, you know, that's often the case. Photographers will often get paid to take press photos. And that that's the scope of their work. You know, it's not like or, or they don't get royalties get, for every photo used, you know, or they get free admission to a concert yeah, 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 yeah. to take, to take photos or a publication pays them or something. But it's a trade. I, I think even, it, the, the other greater thing is that, you know, we also just live in a, you know, part of the side effect of everybody being able to create uh, a, a blog and be able to post things on the internet is that, you know, we have a, a society that is very ignorant of copyright law. And, um, you know, there, there's, a, there's a, our copyright laws are terrible. The, um, I'm a very big fan of Creative Commons, which is Lawrence Lessig and some other people came up with uh, some ideas about how you make copyright a little bit more fair. Like, you know, the perfect example is like there was a, um, a show on public access that was showing the backstage of a, a theater company to show what happens while I think it was Les Miserables is on. And they showed that, you know, actually a lot of the crew is watching the Simpsons because they showed the Simpsons on there. The Simpsons wanted $250,000 for a thing made for, for, uh, what do you call it? PBS, right? No money in this whatsoever. And so, our copyright laws are broke, but there's a Creative Commons license. Like my book, for example, is a Creative Commons license. And all I ask, like anybody can reprint a reasonable amount of text from my book as long as it's credited. Right. And that's what most photos should be. And But technically, under copyrights, these photographers actually have the law on their side. Uh -huh. um, and it doesn't matter if they're taking a picture of you or not. Because you offer yourself up for public. They can't go into your home and take a picture of you and then sell it, even though TMZ would uh, like to uh, debate that one in court with you. <laughs> but 
the the funny thing is, is we have a society that was one of the things the red jumpsuit apparatus did is they argued back and forth about the the legality of this, but it's actually true is that that's that photographer's property and you can't do something like this. Um, now granted, no one's going to court over this or anything because there's no money to be made in it. And that's the other thing about stealing most properties on the internet these days is that no judge would ever see this because there's no money transpired whatsoever, but you can't get damages for it. But I, I, I wish there was a way, like I, I keep joking that we need to have like a, um, mandatory like assembly like you had in school where like once a week we have to educate all of society on some general truths about the law and the way things work especially in the internet age yeah it's tough there's no i mean they're obviously it's very easy to check for that <laughs> like it's literally very easy with the internet but no one does yeah. that uh so you're i think you're definitely right that there's a there's a we all make assumptions because it may seem logical to us but uh, there's actually not, it's not necessarily that way. For example, I am currently in an ethics class at school with, oh, a, really? with, the, with a bunch of fellow 20 to 22 year olds. And God, it's really interesting to see what people think about the world. And I don't know if I'm crazy <laughs> or if they're crazy, but I know one of us are crazy and boy, <laughs> it's really interesting. Just, you know, what we assume is, what we assume is definitely the truth, uh, because we haven't researched it, you know? Mm-hmm. And that's 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 something that's definitely along the lines of this. <laughs> yeah, and I, I think that's the sad thing too is that um, no one takes you to a class, and uh, you know I think there's actually an even greater thing to be learned here from the red jumpsuit apparatus, which is also one of the things I talk about in the book is like every person now it used to be music writers were these paid people they'd just be assigned to your band or a photographer is assigned, but most people who are covering music today are doing it because they're passionate about your band. Right. And when you act like that, you're turning off a fan with a whole lot of friends who are your potential fans who now think you're the biggest fucking asshole on earth. And it's such a bad move for a band. I know, you know, as a former manager, if there's something I do not miss, it's dealing with people who feel entitled to things because about your music, but you have to be polite to them anyway. This is part of the job you signed up for, and you got to be nice and respectful back to these people. Yeah, that's that's what customer service is for a record label. It's yeah, very, uh, yeah. Record records are supposed to be shipping immediately. I thought. Look, uh, look, we got eight hundred and fifteen records in a day. It's going to take more than a day to send them all out. <laughs> oh, there, there, there is. I, I mean. I don't know how interesting. We'll, we'll get into customer service and other. Or yeah, that, I think that's yeah. a, that's a fair that's a fair thing. I think for everyone. We could definitely to hear. talk about that 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 one for for a long time. Running that defend pop punk merch store for <laughs> the time I did was definitely um, not one of the periods of my life I look fo- back upon. It fondly. makes you older. <laughs> I, I you know what's really funny is uh, I got a lot of gray hair that time, but you know I haven't gotten gotten a new gray hair in about two years <laughs> well there you there you go <laughs> so you defended that pretty much says it all yeah. yeah uh so what have you currently been listening to that's newer is about to come out well you recommended me that band better off this week that and that pretty much is all i've been listening to but um i did see two amazing movies this week okay um probably the two best movies i've seen in years um only Lovers Left Alive, which is the Jim Jarmusch vampire movie, is probably the coolest movie I've seen about um, what it's like to be a musician um, who's tortured by the fact that they're not making art that um, 
makes them happy anymore. And it really like gets into this like thing of like, if you had eternal life and you're a creative person, you'd probably be really, really miserable. And it's just such a good movie. And uh, the other one I saw was Yodorowsky's Dune, which is all about before Star Wars, uh, Alejandro Yodorowsky was going to direct the movie Dune before David Lynch inevitably did it. And it was probably going to be the greatest sci-fi movie in the history of mankind, but no studio would give him the money to make it. And it's a documentary all about the process that went into it. And you're just like, it's so sad. This movie will never be made Yeah, that's because it looked like it was going to be a, the best movie ever made. <laughs> that's interesting. Yeah. Uh, that better off record though. Whew. I, yeah. uh, my friend Lisa in November, I think was like, have you listened to this better off band? I was like, no. And that was it. Like it, there was no, like you should listen to this. And then I don't know. I, I listened to it. And it has really gotten like basically no press at all. Uh, and I was like, wow, I just, I, I think I just found armor for sleep again. And huh. I said like, to me, it's, it's so miserably like sad in a great way. And yeah. in the way that I, only I love music, uh, which is <laughs> and that, like, to me, you know, Armor for Sleep is one of my favorite bands ever, and it reminds me so much of the e like the emo ness uh, between the two is very uh, like minded to me. And boy, I was just like, "That's a great record. I love it." Uh, yeah, I, I just ended a three and a half year relationship that I was off and on in, and I put it on. I was like, "Ah, this is the record I've been looking for." Yeah, yeah, it hits you just right and terrible or really wrong. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And now, now I think like it's been about three days, and I've listened to it. 20 times yeah yeah i have been listening to i have never been a big fan of weatherbox before uh and i've always thought they're i haven't either i've always thought they're a cool band and and so whatever they they um i got sent their new album uh that comes out i think next month uh through triple crown and all of a sudden i i know i just i just clicked to play it my friend andy on uh, manchester orchestra helped helped record it and it's coming out oh really yeah andy had a part of it and it's coming out in favorite gentleman too with triple crown so i was like you know i'll give it a spin uh and man it's incredible i don't i don't wow. know what happened there's a lot more pop sensibility in it i guess if like it, it's just more friendly i think uh hmm. and yeah that was always my thing with them is it they, the songs didn't hit me even though I thought they're yeah exactly and, and I don't know cool. this record I, I can't stop listening to it. I love it so I, I think it's gonna be it could be a cool year for those guys uh, and I, I they also I just found um, he, they did this whole record like a side project of the band called Crooks and uh, it got released on in January this year and there's I, there's literally not a single story about it anywhere on the internet uh, and it's fascinating hmm. like it's all the guys in Weatherbox and there is not. Nowhere in absolute bunker, probably Zach or all press anywhere. Uh, so that's interesting as well. And I'm gonna I'm gonna try to dig a little more. I don't know how it happened. Like no one has heard it, and it's this really good album that I, that I only found. Uh, Thomas sent it to me the other day, and I, I've been listening to it a lot lately since. And it's just good, and no one. It's really interesting. No one has even heard it. Uh, uh, so isn't it funny that the correlation between the two records we're liking is also no one's been writing yeah. about them and talking about that. Find, find that really funny of like the idea of that there's this great music and people aren't doing their job getting it to people's ears. Yeah, I should. I should. Yeah, some some of us should you know spend less time uh, yelling at people for covering music and spend more time. Covering it. <laughs> <laughs> and that ties this episode up perfectly. Thank you for listening to the first episode of Off the Record. Jesse and I plan on doing this at least every other week and hopefully then transitioning into a weekly episode. Uh, we're going to be on a lot of different internet places uh, in, right now and then in the near
near future as well. So definitely keep up to date with us and please subscribe to the podcast or even leave a review if you like what you hear. Thank you. And so I guess this next next topic is more all you, but I actually, I find it really interesting as well. And I was going to post it on the website and I I ended up didn't because I actually thought we'd end up talking about it today, uh, which is Mm -hmm. that, uh, what, it's Electric Zoo, right? Yeah, it's Electric Zoo, which is a big EDM festival in New York City. Um, And they do, the company that does it, does it some other places too, but uh, they now have are going to have before you're able to buy a ticket to the festival you're going to have to watch a um PSA done by some of the DJs playing like Steve Ioki um about how you shouldn't do drugs which I'm no libertarian and I'm I don't fear big brother that much except when George Bush is in office but like this seems really 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 big brother and stupid well, to me so explain and, a little bit about why why that's happening though because uh, so somebody, I think two people died at the last electric zoo, right. and we actually and, we we did a big piece on the site about that. I think. Yeah, you. yeah. I, I wrote I wrote I wrote an article about this about. So by yet again, I was a concert promoter in the late '90s, um, and this was during when moshing and dancing was getting a huge crackdown by the awful Giuliani administration in New York, um, and it's the same thing of that. You know, the biggest problem is, is, you know, parents get scared of the kids today and we come up with an answer that's going to absolutely do nothing. Like, so during the Giuliani era, it became the thing that moshing was dancing. And so all these clubs had to get new licenses and clubs shut down. And, you know, the club I worked for, Coney Island High, actually, this is one of the reasons it shut down, because they were getting excessive fines from uh, the Giuliani administration about this. And instead of, you know, smart things like, Maybe get more enhanced security so that they can't bring the Molly into the show inside their uh, sun-tanning lotion bottle. A PSA. It's it's just so, so dumb. And it's the, the, the very common thing when in all of our culture of drug prevention is just that whenever there's a right answer, we don't do the right answer for the outcome we want. And that's been the entire war on drugs thing. And... It's that thing. We're in the phase of now that EDM is becoming the biggest um, music in the world is that we're at the stage where everybody's fearing it instead of going, oh, wow, two out of 100,000 people died. That's kind of a regular concert. Usually there's just that much trampling um, at a country concert. And we look the other way about these things. And now moshing is, you know, no big deal, unlike in the 90s when it became this horrifying thing when Nirvana became the biggest band in the world and there was mosh pits and Dateline NBC devotes an hour to the dangers of mosh pits to scare parents. And so now we have that with a drug that has relatively few fatalities. Yeah, I think I don't know, I think what's interesting about it is that I, I definitely agree. I think everyone would agree that like something needed to be a little more enforced or a little more aware of, but mm-hmm. this kind of just seems like a blanket. Like we had a long list of ideas in a meeting one day and mm-hmm. this was the only one that everyone would agree on. You know what I mean? Like, and not that it's necessarily a good thing. It's just like all the ones like more security. Oh, that costs a lot more money, or you know, whatever yeah. it is. Like, they didn't want to have. They didn't either want to put in the time or the effort or the money to like make the you know do the precautions that could actually 
change it, you know? And, and instead, this is just like a video that people may or may not watch that really like, how, like the festival's a while away, you know? Like there's a lot of time mm -hmm. between watching that PSA and then going to the festival where all the security may be exactly the same as last year. It, it, the security, I, I think we will eventually see a thing um, where the security will get really crazy and you're basically going to get a TSA stripped down before going into an EDM show because some high-profile death will happen, but I just, you know, when I read that part of that article on Billboard this week, I just, it really, it, it sent me right back to the stupid reaction that adults had to moshing, and it's just so sad to see this playing out again. Yeah, and I, I think to like a lot of younger, like the people that's that actually have to sit through and watch that too, it's just kind of like, okay, mom, you know, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's like, <laughs> oh. like, of course, I'm not going to do, do drugs, mom. Cool. Yeah. All right. And yeah. now I'm gonna yeah. go we're, do drugs. We're worse off too when you're looking at Steve Aoki's face, <laughs> trying to tell you not to do drugs, and you're looking at this man who you're like, Jesus Christ, you look like you ooze drugs yeah. from your mouth. And he's like, I want you to do drugs because it's gonna make you want to buy this festival ticket, which I'm getting yeah. like half a million dollars for to play right now. You know, it's just and like they're they're going about it in all the wrong ways. I think. And that, that, that's the other conflict of interest is that just like moshing, you don't get as many kids out to shows unless they're doing this. Every, you know, right. this is part it's of the, the culture. culture. Exactly. Yeah. It, 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 it was the same thing with moshing. It's just like, you know, what the mosh wars did is it started to kill a seed. I watched, literally watched it happen is that as venues couldn't have moshing, couldn't book things like that, it became harder and harder to have big shows for bands. And, you know, no effects would have to play it at, a venue with this ridiculous amount of security and then all of a sudden kids aren't coming out to shows as much right and it goes i mean it goes all the way i mean truly it probably goes all the way back to like you know the beatles you know and just like mm. truly in sense of like drugs like you know the drug culture or the violent culture or whatever like this happens Long every hair. yeah this happens every you know 10 years probably whenever a new 10 to 15 years whenever a new kind of scene develops and something changes you know and it's yeah. it is it's always the same old and it will be for this as well yeah, can't wait to watch this happen again in 10 years. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah, I wonder what that'll be for. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, and uh, yeah, I, I, I don't have any prediction for what, what the next trend is. I, I just know it'll be synthesizer based. Yes, yes.